Good morning, church. Um, today's reading is from Habakkuk 3. It's the ESV version. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigalink. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or the indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Through the, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Lord, as we come to your word, would you speak through it? Would you speak through your Holy Spirit? Lord, would you quieten our hearts? Would you have us ready to be changed? Lord, ultimately, would you help us to come to a place of rejoicing? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in Greek mythology, the hydra is this serpent-like monster that is absolutely terrifying. And the thing that's most terrifying about this beast, this, this evil creature, is that it has so many different heads. 
And the problem with fighting against a hydra is that every time you chop off one of its heads, two grow back in its place. Every time you try to chop one head off, two heads come back in its place. And that makes it a formidable opponent, one that it seems that you would have no way of ever being able to destroy. And in our world, evil and wickedness can seem like that, can't it? When we look at the evil powers that rise, we then see they fall. But then evil powers rise again. We see wicked nations in the Bible rising up, and you see that through the history of our world. But then as they fall, we see others taking their place. And so often the others that take their place are even worse. We see that throughout history. We see the Nazis, they they rose and they fell. We see slave traders rose and they fell. Powers rise, but eventually when they are destroyed, another takes their place. Perhaps even more evil and sophisticated than the one before. You see, our world, it just seems to be constant. It seems that evil is constant. Every time we turn on the news, we see evil. We see stabbing after stabbing. We see abuse after abuse. But also, I think sometimes our troubles can seem like that, can't they? Sometimes we can go through things in life, and it feels as if as soon as one thing ends, another begins. As soon as one question seems to be answered, we are faced with something that is even worse. It can feel like we're stuck in a vicious cycle. Well, what is our hope in the light of that? What's our hope in light of a world where evil just seems to grow and grow and grow, and also a world where our troubles seem to grow and grow and grow? Well, Habakkuk shows us how we are to respond when we see the evil of this world and when we're faced with our own suffering. He shows us, actually, how we are to respond when we're confused as to what God is doing. You see, in our series so far, we've been going through this incredible book of Habakkuk, and we've seen that it is, in many senses, a conversation between God and Habakkuk. We've seen them going forth to one another, having a kind of conversation. And Habakkuk, he has this this great burden. He has this great burden that you can almost imagine just weighing him down on his back, because he looks at the world out there, and he sees evil. He sees wickedness. He sees the Babylonians approaching, knowing that they are wanting to conquer God's people. But not just that. You see, Habakkuk looks at the world out there and sees evil and wickedness. But then he looks around. He looks around at God's people. And he sees that also God's people are sinning. God's people have, in a sense, turned away from him. And Habakkuk starts this book by asking God why he would ever allow that to happen. Why would a good and perfect God allow that? And and we're really encouraged that God chooses to speak to Habakkuk. God addresses him. And it seems that it's really exciting as God addresses him. But then there's something confusing. There's something confusing because you see, God has decided to raise up the Babylonians. He's decided to raise up this evil and wicked nation in order to actually, in many ways, discipline his people in order to turn them back to him. And this makes Habakkuk even more confused. Why on earth would a good and holy God raise up evil? Why would he allow evil, in one sense, to reign, to discipline his people? And God's response is that Habakkuk is to have faith, and that actually, over time, God's plans and his purpose will be revealed. Habakkuk is to wait patiently by faith. But he's also promised that evil will be punished. And we saw that last week. 
we saw that actually God pronounced these judgments, these woes, on the Babylonians. You see, although God raised up the Babylonians, actually he was going to judge them eventually for all the wickedness that they had done. And that's what he would do. He would bring justice to them. And in many ways, we are very beneficial of where we're living in history because we can look back. We can see that the Babylonians have been judged. We can see that God was true to his word. But Habakkuk, he was to look forward and to have faith that God would do that. But it raises the question, doesn't it, for us this morning, is the world locked in an endless cycle of good and evil, of wicked nations punishing people and treading down the oppressed? And even if those wicked nations are punished, well, are they just going to rise up again? Because for us, as we're living here, it doesn't sound very exciting, does it? To be locked in a world where there is an endless fight between good and between evil, when evil so often like that hydra seems to have its head chopped off, but then two grow in its place. But also for our individual sufferings. If we are to just keep suffering and suffering and suffering, what hope is there? What hope do we have in a world also where if Russia is to fall, we know that maybe another power is going to rise that might even be even worse in its place? We see Habakkuk's just seen that God has pronounced his judgments on Babylon and every evil nation and person. And he realizes, Habakkuk realizes, that evil needs to be dealt with. And we end this book with his final speech. And in many ways, it's exactly what he wants us to hear. From all this conversation that he's had with God, for all the questions that he's had, he leaves us with something that he wants us to remember. And we're going to walk through that now. And first of, off, we, first of all, we start off with verse 1 and 2, Habakkuk's plea. We see Habakkuk's natural response to all that he's seen in the world and all that he's kind of witnessed is to pray. And I think immediately that is a great example for us, isn't it? A great application point that actually we can turn to God in prayer. You remember from the first week, one of our application points was that we can turn to a God who hears us that we can speak to him. He's not some kind of far-off God. He's not someone that we have to approach when we've just got ourselves right or we've tried to live maybe a perfect couple of days or a perfect week. No, actually, we can turn to God in prayer. The God of the universe hears our prayers. We did something funny at the prayer meeting the other day when we all just started praying out loud at the same time. And although it seemed very strange, it was representative of the fact that actually God hears every single one of us. As we're all praying individually, God hears our prayer. And Habakkuk has this opportunity to turn to God in prayer. But it's not just a prayer. You see, you'll notice from the beginning that there's that weird word. That's shigonof. Rebecca, you pronounced it better than me. That word basically means that this in many senses isn't just a prayer, but it is also a song. So think about where we've come from. We've started Habakkuk. We've seen that he's had questions We've seen that he looks at the world and says, how long, Lord? And yet now, he's gone from confusion to a song. He's gone from questioning to singing God's praise. You see, the interesting thing here for Habakkuk is that he's, he's heard what God has done in the past. He's heard how God has brought justice on this world. He's heard how he's brought a flood over the whole world because people turned against him. He's seen how he's brought plagues on Egypt. He's seen how ultimately he brought the Red Sea down on the Egyptians because they'd taken his people into slavery. And as he's listened to those five woes, 
that God has pronounced on Babylon. And as he's fought back to all of the things that God has done in the past, there is a sense in which he's terrified. There is a sense in which he has understood something that we would call the fear of the Lord. Now today I don't think we maybe understand this as well, and maybe we don't speak about it because it doesn't seem as palatable to us. But actually we should fear God. We should fear God. Some of you might be confused about that. You might be about to get out of your seats and walk out. But we should fear God. Let me explain. It doesn't mean that we are scared of God and that we can never approach him. What the Bible means is that we understand God's power and we respect him. See, God isn't someone to just be fist bumps or just one of our mates. He's not like Siri or Alexa that he's just in the background and when we want to speak to him, then we can. You see, when we speak about God and when we think about God and when we respect who he is, we understand that he is the almighty, he is the glorious, he's the omnipotent one, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's sovereign, he's the creator God. There is nothing that has ever happened in creation that isn't under his command. And actually, if we fully understand that and fully comprehend that, then that should bring about some sense of respect and some sense of fear. You see, God is so holy that we could not look at him and even stand in his presence unless he allowed it. He is that holy. He is a holy God and therefore we should respect him and have a right fear of him. And I think in some senses we understand this in our world, right? We understand this idea of reverence. You see, before she died, if any of us had met the queen, we probably wouldn't have said, oh, you're right, Lizzie, how are you doing? Stick on a cuppa for me. No, we would have had reverence for her. She was our sovereign. We would have treated her with respect and dignity. No wonder we won't get into a debate now about what we think about the monarchy. But there would have been some respect, right? Some respect of the power that she had, of the position that she held. Well, if we're to respect a monarch, then how much more so should we treat God with the respect that he is due? His power and his judgment should scare us because there is a right and healthy fear of God. But at the same time, we also should long for his judgment. You see, Habakkuk calls for God's judgment because he sees evil and he sees wickedness both in the world and around him. And we want justice too, don't we? Do we not want justice? Because evil needs to be judged. You see, when we see something in this world that is wrong, we cry out for justice. Do we want a world where stabbings just can continue? Where people can abuse others? Where wicked wars can take place? Of course not. We long for justice. But because of this, and all that Habakkuk's understanding in this, we see in verse 2 that he asks God to remember mercy even in his wrath. You see, Habakkuk's not shying away from the fact that evil's been done. He's not asking for evil to be ignored or let go. But what he is asking is that God would remember his people, that he would protect them, that he would have mercy on them, you see, he's heard that God's, God has these judgments. He's heard these woes. He's seen the woes pronounced on, on Babylon. But he's asking that God would have mercy on his people. That actually as Babylon comes, that would be a way of discipline, disciplining God's people and turning them back to him. He's praying that God might have mercy on his people, even though they've been guilty of sinning against him. One commentator says this, and I think it's so helpful. The love of God is so strong that even when he's fragrantly ignored, deserted, or rejected, he's drawn as a husband to his wife, 
as a mother to her child in love in spite of the actions of the other. The wrongs are real, but so too is the compassion and the desire to forgive. forgive. If the condition for restoration is present, a renewed desire to acknowledge God, if that desire is present, then the floods of his mercy are unleashed. Think of that. Think of that wave of God's mercy. A tsunami in many ways. There's nothing that can stand in its way. You see, when God's mercy is poured out, there is nothing that his people can do to stop it. It's mercy that washes over them. There's no way that actually, if God gives you mercy, that you'll be completely covered in it. It's so encouraging to know that, isn't it? That although there is a right wrath that God will put to the people that don't follow him, that for us, we can be covered in the waves of his mercy. Because we all need God's mercy. You see, even yesterday, as King Charles III was proclaimed king, there was that declaration of them asking God for mercy. And whether they understood it or not, and I'm not sure if they actually fully understood it, but they're right. Because even a monarch, even someone that could rule this entire world, even someone that could have billions and billions of pounds, the one thing that they need in this life is God's mercy. Because there is nothing that ultimately can seal us from God's judgment unless we have his mercy. And Habakkuk understands that, and that is his plea from the very start. But then he turns, and he turns to rehearse some of what God has done in the past. Remember, Habakkuk has has spoken about how he's heard of God's works of old. You see, the works that he's speaking of are things that he would look back on the Old Testament, and he would have seen what God has done. He's seen particularly around the time of Exodus. And in a sense, Habakkuk stands in the middle of Israel's history. And what he does is he looks back to what has happened in the past so that he can look forward in expectation to what God will do. He looks back in the past to see what God will do in the future. And first of all, we see God's appearance. We see from verse 3, the Lord comes from Teman and Mount Paran. Now, you might not have a clue where those places are. I didn't, I had to look them up. But in a way, it's not speaking specifically, but it's speaking figuratively. You see, Moses uses similar language in Deuteronomy 33. He says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth forth from Mount Paran. You see, God came to his people in their need, in his glory and his power. And it's this idea that figuratively he came and they saw his glory. You see, There is no part of God's creation that he is not in complete control of. And there's not one single inch of his creation that doesn't give him glory. There's not one single centimetre of this whole universe that doesn't give glory to God. And as he comes, and as his people saw him in the past, sometimes they saw him as a pillar of cloud or fire by night. But however they saw him, he was a majestic God who came upon upon them. Is that not a God to both fear and worship? Is that not a God both to fear and worship? Well, secondly, we see God's judgment through plagues. Look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence, and plagues followed at his heels. This takes us back to the plagues in Exodus. Habakkuk, is, he's looking back. The water turning to blood. Frogs, gnats, flies, livestock dying, boils, hails, locusts, darkness, and the killing of the firstborn son. Now, you're probably getting very used to us mentioning this film. 
But the Prince of Egypt is a wonderful depiction of what happened in many ways. And we had a chance to watch it as a church, and I'd really encourage you to watch it. And it shows these different plagues, but what it does wonderfully is it doesn't try and dilute what happens. It doesn't do what many people in our world would try to do and dilute it. You see, actually, these, this isn't a fictional tale or a funny little story. This is God's judgment poured out on his enemies. This is God's justice against those who have enslaved others. This is God bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. It's God showing his power over each of the Egyptian gods. Because although they stood for all these different things, God completely controls what they were supposed to be worshipped for. But even though all those plagues happened, we have in the lyrics of that song in the Prince of Egypt, and actually we see this in the Bible as well, that Pharaoh says this, Then let my heart be hardened, and never mind how high the cost may grow. This will still be so. I will never let your people go. You see, Pharaoh and Egypt and evil wanted to tread down and oppress God's people. But God came and he rescued them. Even though Pharaoh said that he'd never let his, God's people go, God's judgment finally does free his people. And you see, only God could do that. Habakkuk looks back and sees that only God could have rescued his people. They couldn't have rescued themselves by their might. They could never escape from their own. But God was able to make them escape. But he did it in a way of plagues and of things that in many senses we should look at and we should be fearful. Because if he is a God that can bring those plagues and he is a God that will use those plagues as right judgment, then we need to make sure that we stand with him, right? We need to make sure that we stand with him. Is he not a God to both fear and worship? Because he's mighty. And we see that in a third picture. We see his powerful appearance. Verse 6. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. You see, again, this is both specific and general. Habakkuk looks back and he sees specific times when God has done this. When God has taken his people out of Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai. And he reveals his power to them and he sets out how they are to live. Listen to these words from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because God has descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. That is the kind of God that we are dealing with the kind of God who could shake a whole mountain, the kind of God who back in Exodus revealed himself to his people. And you know what happened? The people were so fearful, they understood so much about how glorious and how great God was that they wouldn't even step onto the mountain because they understood and they had a reverence and they had a fear of him. But the wonderful thing is that God provided a mediator he provided Moses as someone that could go into his place to bridge the gap between the people and God. And they worshipped him. Because they understood that they were to fear him and how great he was, that naturally led them to worshipping him. And they were delighted. Delighted that God was on their side and not against them. But notice this, it's not just specific to that time. It's not that Habakkuk is just looking back, but he's looking generally. 
Verse 6 says, eternal mountains, everlasting hills, everlasting ways. You see, the same God who displayed his glory at Mount Sinai still reigns today. And one day the whole earth will see his glory. One day he will shake Everest. One day all the mountains will tremble because he will come back in power and glory. You see, his work was known throughout the world at the time. Many times the Israelites meet different nations and they have heard of what God has done. And although they have some kind of fear, their fear isn't like Habakkuk. You see, their fear doesn't change them. They don't decide to worship God. But there will be a day that everybody sees God in all of his glory. Everybody will see him. Is that not a God both to fear and to worship? But we also see God's powerful use of nature. Verses 8 to 10 and verse 13 are all about this use of water. And you see, Habakkuk remembers the plagues of turning the river Nile to blood and of stopping the the Jordan in Joshua. We have this poetic language of God speaking about horses and winning victory for his people. Particularly verse 15 speaks of this trampling. And I think for most of us it will take us back to that language and that description of the Red Sea in Exodus. You see, the Israelites had finally been freed from slavery. God had worked through these plagues and these judgments on Egypt that they finally let God's people free. But as they were escaping Egypt, the Egyptians decided that no, they wanted to oppress them more. And evil and wickedness came through and it came towards the Israelites and things seemed uncertain. And yet God, in his power and might and majesty, parted the waves of the Red Sea. And he let his people pass through. But then as his enemies, as those people that wanted to oppress and as evil came to destroy the Israelites, God brought his judgment upon the Egyptians. He brought the waters down. Instead of waves of mercy covering them, instead waves of judgment covered them. And they were destroyed. And Israel stand, they stood on the banks of the Red Sea. And what we see as they stand on the banks of the Red Sea is they sing a song of glory to God. You see, they've got this intention now. They've seen that God has destroyed this whole army and they have a right fear of a God who would be able to do that. But they also worship him because he's theirs and he is for them and he is on their side. And instead of waves of judgment coming upon them, waves of mercy have come upon them. Is that not both a God to fear and worship? All of this paints this picture of God as a warrior. We could spend so much time on all of this, but we're having to rush through it slightly. But he's a warrior who goes out to defend his people and bring justice. You see, he fights for his people. There are even points in Israel's history where the sun and the moon stand still. The sun and the moon stand still because God is so powerful and he goes out for his people. You may remember from last week we looked at the woes, didn't we? And we see that at some points God will use the very arrows that wickedness and evil uses and he will turn them back on the evil and wicked and he will judge them. You see, he is a warrior. He is a warrior who goes out to fight for his people and he is a warrior who is assured of victory. Don't you want to be on the side of the one who is assured victory? Of the one who is powerful and mighty? Do you want to live for something for this world? Or do you want to live for the one who can make mountains tremble? Does that not pale in comparison for all the things in this world that we can, we can put our trust in? Does that not even pale in comparison when we look at Putin and other people and world leaders who try to do evil and wickedness? Yes, they can cause some kind of fear, but they can't tremble mountains. 
They can't bring the Red Sea down on their enemies ultimately. They can't even bring mercy. You see, God works to deliver his people. And the wonderful truth is that we can look back and we can see that through history. And that's what Habakkuk's doing. We can see how he's protected his people. But it also looks to the future, as I said. Because Habakkuk's standing in the middle. You see, for Habakkuk, he's been promised that the Babylonians are going to be judged. But he's actually not seen that yet. You see, he's actually seeing the Babylonians coming towards him. And he's still seeing the sin of the people around him. But nothing's changed Even though he's having this conversation with God, nothing has changed yet. But what he does is he looks back. He looks back to all that God has done. Then he looks to where he is and he trusts God in the future because what he's done in the past. He trusts God in the future because what he's done in the past. Because you see, these pictures in Exodus aren't just a picture of what happened in the past, but they are to look forward They are to paint a picture. When we go to Revelation, we see that God's judgments will come. We see that there will be woe on the world. As last week we looked, we see that there is woe pronounced on Babylon. You see, those pictures in Exodus aren't just a picture to remain there, but they are a picture for us to take now in our presence and look forward into the future. In some senses, there's always a question when we're reading this, particularly if you're taking the original languages, of what tense this is in. What tense is Habakkuk talking about? Is he talking about the past or the present or the future? And there's a sense that as he speaks, he's speaking in a tense which is called the prophetic perfect. You see, he looks back and he sees that what was true of that time was true of that time. But as a prophet, he also speaks with reassurance and trust and complete 100% guarantee that God will judge evil and wickedness in the future. And not only will he do that, but he will do that resolutely. And he will do that finally. And all evil that has reigned and every single empire that has come down and then raised up again will eventually be killed. Although it seems as if you chop the heads of that creature that two grow back in its place, there will be a day. There will be a day where death and evil and sin will be destroyed completely. Because God is sovereign. And finally Habakkuk looks forward. He looks forward and he reacts. He responds to all that's happened in the past. We turn to verses 16 to 19 and we see this. We see Habakkuk's faithful praise. You see, Habakkuk was completely overcome of all this. In a sense, imagine what it'd be like to to meet someone incredible, to, to maybe have met Queen Elizabeth when she was alive, or to meet our new king or any great ruler in this world. There would be some sense in which we'd feel overcome, right? And maybe our hands would be twitching slightly. Or we would feel that our knees were knocking together because we understood how powerful someone was. Well, that's just a small taste of what Habakkuk feels as he looks back on God's mighty works. He understands this reverence. We see this description that that his body starts to respond to how amazing he sees and how powerful he sees God to be. Verse 16 shows he can barely stand because he understands God's power. But we must remember, as I said... Habakkuk hasn't yet seen God judge the Babylonians. See, the Babylonians are coming. They are going to take over Israel. They're going to take them into exile. Habakkuk's still looking around at God's people and he's seeing that they are sinning and turning from him. You see, his circumstances haven't changed. But what has changed is that his knowledge of what God has done has come back into his mind. He's looked back and he's seen what God has done. And because of that, he can wait patiently. Because of that, he can have faith. Because of that, he can listen to God's words in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. 
the righteous shall live by faith. And verse 3, for the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You see, Habakkuk is patiently waiting. It's Habakkuk's faith that allows him to trust God, despite everything that's going on, and despite the fact, actually, that there doesn't seem to be much hope. As we read through these final verses, particularly verse 17, we see that things look bleak. We see Israel's faking economic disaster. The Babylonians are looking like they're about to come. And even Israel's people, the people of God, are seemingly sinning. And you see, Habakkuk doesn't quite understand what God's doing in his life. And he's questioned him and he's asked him. But when he looks back and he sees that God has proved himself in history, he has faith in the present and he rejoices God. And he trusts that he will act in the future. You see, we've seen him question God. We've seen him be confused at why God would use the sinful Babylonians to turn his people back to him. But he's come to a place of song, and he's come to a place of praise. You see, he starts Habakkuk 1 by saying, how long shall I cry for help? But now, he says, I will quietly wait. You see, his situation hasn't necessarily changed, but what has changed is he's seen God's power and he has faith. And that's represented in the lives of so many of us, isn't it? And particularly, I think, so many of our older saints. So many people throughout their Christian life who have suffered illness, who have lost those that are close to them, who have faced persecution, who have seen the world and have seen these powers rising and falling and seen the oppression that takes place, who have cried tears onto their pillow and asked God how long, who have had these dialogues of praying. There are those who have prayed for for 30 years for their non-Christian friends and family to be saved and have said, how long, Lord? There are those who have seen abuse take place in their life. There's those who have seen things that could cause them to question God. And yet, they have both questioned God and submitted to him. But they've looked back and they've seen in God's word all the things that he has done through scripture. They've seen, I've literally accidentally flicked perfectly to Exodus 14. They've seen he crossed the Red Sea. He allowed his people to cross the Red Sea. They've seen all the works he's done. They've flicked through scripture. And although their circumstance hasn't seemed to change, and although the pain is still there, they have trusted in him. And that is what Habakkuk is doing. That is the example of what we are to do. But, but, the reality is, is that all of us have turned away from God at different points in some way. All of us have questioned him. All of us have found things hard, particularly if we're suffering. We've all turned to idols. At times we have rejected God. At times maybe we haven't looked back to what he's done and we haven't trusted him in the present for what he'll do in the future. And you see, each and every one of us, because in some way we have turned away from God, we do deserve his judgment. We do deserve for the waters of his judgment to fall upon us like they fell upon the Egyptians. And you see, if you're not part of God's people then the waves of his judgment will fall on you. The Bible is sure and certain of that because to reject God is to stand against him. And I want to warn you that this morning because it is a terrible thing and there is no escaping his judgment. You see, the waves of his judgment will come down on you and you will be given what you want. Eternity without him. In some way, if I could see everyone in here, if I could see your spiritual state and whether or not you were living for the Lord or not, I would want to go up to each and every one of you who is not living for the Lord and grab you and say, please turn to him. 
because his judgment is true and it will come because we have all turned against him. However, there is a way that the waves of judgment don't fall on us. You see, Habakkuk, he looked forward and he trusts that God would bring salvation for his people. And that's what God did. You see, there was one who came to take our place. There was one who freely took on the ways of God's judgment. There's one who lived a perfect life. And although we had sinned and rejected God, there is one who stood in our place and let the judgment of God's wrath fall on him and let those waves drown him and took death for us and took the weight of all of our sin and let it fall on us. You see, the Lord Jesus, he stood in the place of his people. He stood and he allowed them to pass through the waves of judgment if they trust in him. You see, evil might seem at times, though its head's been chopped off and it rises again, but in Christ it's been destroyed. You see, there might be a day that we think that evil is reigning, but there will be a day when we see it is destroyed. We will see that reality that God, through Christ, has defeated death. He's defeated wickedness. He's defeated sin. That injustice will one day be no longer because Christ on the cross defeated all those things. And for those who are living for God, they will face that judgment, but they'll be able to pass through it because Christ allowed those waves to fall on him. God's people will be secure in Jesus. And if that isn't your reality right now this morning, then I pray that it would become that reality, even this morning that you would turn to him. But to end, how do we apply this to those of us who are Christians? Three things. Fear, faith, and thanksgiving. I know thanksgiving doesn't begin with F, but never mind. Fear the Lord. For those of us who are Christians here this morning, I think we should look back to God's mighty acts. And we should have a healthy fear of his judgment. We should understand that it is a terrible thing. And that fear ultimately should lead us to praise him. And to be so glad that we don't have to face that judgment because of Jesus. It should point us to the gospel. It should point us to faith. We should have fear of God, but we also should have faith. We should have faith in God because he's proved himself over history. He's proved that he can bring the, the, his Israelites through the Egyptian people. He's proved that he will save us. He's proved that he will take us forward to the end. I don't know exactly what's going on in your life. I don't know exactly what areas you are questioning God in or the suffering that you are taking. The things that you're calling to mind even now. The questions that you're asking God. But if you are God's, then he will bring you forth to the end. And he calls you to have faith in him. Sometimes life doesn't make sense, right? Sometimes things happen that, that we don't understand. Why are we suffering in this way? Why did that relationship end? Why do we feel that there is abuse and oppression? Or why does the world not seem as it is? But God has worked through the past so he can work for your present. And he will keep you to his future. And what that should mean is that we should be giving thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving, just as Habakkuk turned in this prayer and praised God, we are to do as well. You see, Habakkuk's situation didn't change. But what he did is he looked back and he was able to praise in the present. Things might seem confusing and tough at times. There might be doubt and discouragement. But we look to what God has done most perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we faithfully trust and we praise him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to have a right fear of you.
to understand that your judgment is terrible, might that lead us both to obedience to you, but also to want to witness to others that they might escape your judgment? Might that help us to remember how amazing the gospel is, that the Lord Jesus took on the waves of your judgment? Lord, help us to have faith, faith in our circumstances when times are hard and when there are trials. Help us to have faith, just like Habakkuk was called to. And Lord, help us to go from that place that we see Habakkuk going, from questioning how, how long, Lord, why, what are you doing in life, to saying, I will wait patiently, to saying, I will have faith, to giving praise to you. Lord, help us to praise you and give you thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.